I must say you are looking extremely fit. Would you mind lifting lifting your shirt so so we can inspect the abdominal muscles? Oh yeah, indubitably. It was also obvious the host of Good Sport was interested in him sexually. I'm not entirely sure that camera got that. Crackerjack. Welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about the way that we experience television. I'm horror author and film critic Gretchen Felker-Martin, and with me is my illustrious co-host... Shanti Collins. I'm a television critic, and I'm the author of Pain Don't Hurt, Meditations on Roadhouse, which you can buy right now at mzsworldstore.com. And today we're going to talk about Caspian Wint, a fake sportscaster played by Michael Sheen in the mockumentary Seven Days in Hell. Which... As you can perhaps already tell from the clip that we played, this is a bit of a departure for you and me, correction. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. This is, I mean, we probably reference Caspian Wint every time we see each other. Yes. But this is not what we're known for talking about. No, no. We don't talk about comedy. No, we don't. We generally speaking, don't write about it either. No. I mean, do you want to get into that first before we get into the show itself and the character himself? Sure, why not? Yeah. So I have a longstanding belief that people have heard me voice on a number of occasions that in comedy, the characters are fundamentally joke delivery mechanisms. They can be really interesting and fun and and cool or creepy or whatever, but their basic function is to tell jokes or to set up, you know, physical comedy or whatever the case may be. Their goal is to for you to laugh. And that overrides any kind of consideration about making them act like normal people or act, you know, or act like a kind of a cohesive character in the way that characters exist in drama. I feel really strongly about this. And, and there's lots of comedies that I enjoy. And now, now I sound like Graham Chapman saying no one likes a good laugh more than I do. (laughs) <laughs> my wife and some of her friends. Oh, yes, and Captain Johnson. Uh, but it's no, and for real, there's a lot of comedy that I like. I do enjoy laughing. I'm not like a complete stick in the mud, I promise. But it is always weird to me to see shows like Parks and Rec or The Good Place or any of the Netflix Master of None and all these shows uh, discussed like they are, you know, unless they really take a hard right turn into drama, which has been done certainly by shows. They exist fundamentally to to tell the joke. And that's very different from a character in a drama who happens to be funny because that's part of their personality or happens to be funny because they can't shoot straight. Um, right. You know, which, which, as I think we've brought up before, is the case with shows like Mad Men and The Sopranos, which is really your territory, I would say. Yeah, I mean, like many humans, I enjoy laughter. And the moments at which it involuntarily comes out of my body. But I agree with you. Something about the experience of watching comedy, especially a sitcom, is so calculated to me. And and I think a part of that is that many, many, many sitcoms and much comedy in general totally gives up on 
any sense of craft. There is no visual flourish in most comedy. The set dressing and costuming and what have you is all incidental. Most comedy looks like shit. Yep. And like you said, the people in comedy aren't really people. I mean, like, I fucking love Cheers. I could sit and listen to Norm crack one-liners about his wife all day. (laughs) But that's not a real person. You know, there's no one like that. He could be a caricature of real people. Absolutely. He's a political cartoon in human form. Yes, yeah. He's he's fucking Andy Cap. (laughs) For for our younger listeners, Andy Cap is a newspaper (laughs) cartoon. (laughs) I mean, I guess our younger listeners won't even know what the fuck Cheers is. Yeah, yeah. well, so, we, we certainly lost them with Andy Cap, but yeah. <laughs> we're out in the weeds now, man. Yep. But anyway, my essential disinterest in comedy stems from the fact that it just, it's a level too far past suspension of disbelief for me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a big difference between Tony Soprano saying, you're making me out to be like, I'm some kind of Hannibal lecture. And whatever fucking bacon joke you're going to hear on parks and rec. Yeah. That, that is my objection. And I also think you're dead on about most comedy being indifferently directed and, and photographed. Um, yes. I actually think cheers is a little bit of an exception. It has this beautiful, like, like wood gold bronze look to oh, it. The set of cheers is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It really is just like, especially if you're from new England, like I am just that dark wood, the glow of it and the old metal work. It's so evocative. It it instantly brings you right into, right into that, that bar. Yeah. Here's another thing. And I'm, I'm as many know, I am not one to get up on a soapbox about, political correctness in in film and television. Mm -hmm. It's important to me as I I think it should be important to any decent person, but I I don't tend to spend my time talking about it too extensively. Modern comedy and comedy, I mean, stretching back for decades is some of the most hateful shit I have ever seen. Parks and Recreation and 30 Rock and basically any comedy you can name from the past 20 years is so replete with fat jokes and jokes about trans people that are just like bitterly crushingly hateful and it's nonstop. Yeah. There's so many comedies that I, you know, used to enjoy that I I have a hard time picturing myself revisiting them because I think I'll just cringe um, at what I used to find funny without thinking. And, you know, growing up and becoming an adult and, and improving yourself as a person is about kind of expanding your field of empathy, as it were. And yeah. uh, so much comedy is laughter at other people's expense. And usually they find, you know, vulnerable groups that normie society can kind of collectively point and laugh at. and. Right. So it's kind of an unpleasant dynamic a lot of times. And, you know, that's virtually universal, I think, with 
with almost, and even, you know, going further back, like I really like, well, historically I haven't watched it in a while, but I loved Ghostbusters for the longest time. Cause I thought it was one of the best New York movies ever made. Like for the, some moron brought a cougar, cougar to a party, to a party and went, and went berserk. berserk. I mean, how can you beat that as a one line description of like what New York attitudes are like, or certainly what like eighties New York was like, you know, it's, it's magnificent. But the whole plot is about Bill Murray sexually harassing Sigourney Weaver when she <laughs> yeah. hires him to, you know, to exercise her fridge. It lost a lot of people for that. And it yeah. also kind of created this open space for the two recent ill-advised Ghostbusters reboots to take place. Oh, Lord. Um, where we're gonna, not going to do that kind of thing. And like, you almost like overcorrect in the other direction. And it, I, it just neither of them looked at all funny to me. Like it wasn't even a consideration. I don't even know if the the second one is out or is not. it not out yet. I have no <laughs> idea. Um, but the first one, I saw it in theaters because my either a friend or a partner wanted to go. I can't remember which. And within a few hours, I could only remember part of the very opening, which is maybe the only funny thing in the entire movie which is uh, this tall, gawky tour guide giving a group uh, a tour of this museum and saying, and this is the room where P.T. Barnum first had the idea to enslave elephants. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's a great fucking line. Yeah. Um, and then there's just, there's just nothing. I mean... I like comedy that's at someone's expense. I like it when it cuts and is kind of like unpleasant to watch or, you know, is being scored off the back of someone's head. But yes, I, I suppose I should say here that I don't want to give anyone the, the, the impression that I'm a nice person. I do really <laughs> like comedy. That's other. I like mean spirited comedies, mean spirited comedies. Like that's, that's where my bread is buttered. Yes. Uh, historically and and to this day you know like i would say my favorite modern comedians who are are not immune from criticism along the lines that i've i've just laid out tim and eric are extremely mean-spirited in a lot of ways yes Um, you know about stuff like suburban culture and masculinity and attitudes about bodies yep commercials uh (laughs) you know and just just the marketing of products to as like a as a kind of a cure-all for what ails you yeah commercialism first and foremost is what tim and eric are about and there's this sort of like i mean we've talked about this before but it's sort of them and drill who have their thumb on the pulse of what America has become in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're truly way out in the weeds. We are here. way out in the weeds. I, I do want to add one other thing to your point earlier about how most comedy is, is sort of visually inert. And I think one of the reasons the Coen brothers became so adored in, in addition to their ability to jump between genres and tones is the fact that they actually direct their comedy movies to look like, movies yes god i mean it's a fucking miracle that these things exist in a lot of you know barton fink uh, which is a lot of different kinds of movies all rolled into one but it's certainly a comedy or the big lebowski which is like 
they're kind of signpost movie in a lot of ways. Right, or like, Fargo, which, you know, is the other contender for that. Yes, spot. yes. Like, they look like films. Yeah. Like, great. with a capital F. You know, it's uh, it's funny the way that the industry has changed in regard to how it handles comedy, because now comedies are all a bunch of, like, late 30s or mid 40s white guys who are, are man children. Yeah. And it used to be that a comedy could be like a, a tent post movie, you know, like some like it hot stuff like that. The apartment mm-hmm. is very, very funny and was like a big movie when it came out. Yeah. I think they reference it in one of the first few episodes of Mad Men. Makes sense. I think it was a big, if I recall correctly, it's, that was a big, big, big influence on Weiner when he was making that show. Oh yeah, huge. Uh, all of those shots of like the office pool at Sterling Cooper are straight out of the apartment. Mm-hmm. So, Caspian Wint. <laughs> and yes, now to return to the matter at hand. Caspian Wint is a pedophile. Yeah. Just the most despicable human being you can imagine. He is played by Michael Sheen in a false beer belly with dandruff on his shoulders and flop sweat on his upper lip and this limp like his hair looks like it committed suicide (laughs) (laughs) he's just this trembling gulping horrible horrible screen presence the worst man you can imagine Yes, he looks like some sort of bladder in a sport coat. Oh my god, yes! And, yeah, he's a very... I mean, just everything about him is damp. Like, he (laughs) just... And he looks like he sweats gin. Like, his sweat looks like it's 88 proof. I mean, even his voice is damp. He has that that sort of moist lisp. Yeah, with the the almost Elmer Fudd-like R's. Right. Like, he's he's got too much tongue. Yep. And he's chain smoking. His jacket is buttoned for reasons beyond me. That and oh so it God, sort of it, looks yeah, like terrible. Yeah, if he if he takes a deep breath, like a, like the button will shoot out and hurt someone. Um, <laughs> right. And he's like he like and it, that's that's about his body language too because it's it's all about like how he's kind of reclined in his chair and yeah he's like, hunched forward and slumped back at the exact same time. I, how does he do it? I don't, it's. I don't know. He looks like a gargoyle. Yes. It is such a remarkable performance by Michael Sheen. And that's really not very surprising because that's a dude who commits to the bit. Like, yeah. If you've seen the Twilight movies, man, he's having a good time in those movies. He may be the only person in those movies who's having a good time in those movies. Yeah, for sure. Certainly by the end of it, it, he really does it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the end of it, it was like a hostage tape for Pattinson and Stewart, but like, (laughs) but he was, he, uh, like, he just had a ball. Cause why not? You're getting, you're getting, you've been hired to play the king of the vampires in a teen romance. Like have some fucking fun with it. Why not? This is is a, a role that is conceptually awesome and doesn't matter at all. Right. So just create that, like, high-pitched hysterical giggle that he does in that in that oh it's so good and to see him kind of inhabit another weird character 
who's in some sort of nominal position of authority, but is just so thoroughly broken and wretched. And wretched. Yeah. He's, 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 he's like the golem of, of sports talk. <laughs> and I think God, one thing I really love about him and the way that he's situated in that movie is that many characters either do not remark on his behavior or simply say he's a bit of a rapscallion. Yes, yes. <laughs> like the the mother of the character that he's kind of coming on to, it was played by Kit Harrington, is a tennis player named a tennis prodigy named Charles Poole. His mother's played by Mary Steenburgen, and she loves this guy because yes. all she knows is that he's paying her son the kind of attention that he needs to become a famous t- professional tennis player, which is right. the only reason why she has a son, basically. So there's this whole grotesque uh, idea that he's sort of being almost Pimp. pimped out. Yeah. Yeah. To, to this talk show host, which as you know, if you know anything about Britain, so not, not that far afield from things that actually have happened. And uh, so like, it's in a way, not in a way it's playing with some pretty dark stuff. Absolutely. I I think that the key elements that prevent it from being sort of unwatchably tense or mood breaking first, this is the performance of Kit Harrington's lifetime. And he (laughs) achieves that by not acting at all. Yes. He just, stares straight ahead. This character is so fucking dense that he does not realize what is happening. (laughs) (laughs) Which is very funny because that's clearly also the only reason that Michael Sheen's character is being so disgustingly forward. Right. You know, like obviously the joke here is like, why is he doing this on camera? Why is this not happening backstage? Yeah. Yeah. It's all right out in the open. Right. Which, you know, is, is, some pretty sharply barbed commentary on the state of English television. Yeah. You know, and that's like, it's not just Jimmy Savile and things like that. Like if you remember, if you've ever seen the, uh, the filth and the, the clip that led to the headline, the filth and the fury when the sex pistols were on TV. Yes, I have. Yeah. You know, the reason that I forget which sex pistol it was who started dropping the F bombs or whatever, but it was because the, the host hit on Susie Sue. Yeah. Like that was the proximate cause of the Sex Pistols getting pissed off and cursing on television was because the guy who was interviewing them was being sort of lewd to Susie Sue right there on camera for everyone to see. Right. Because that's where you enjoy power. Other people are subject to the social contract that no one is going to fuck up this television that's happening. Right. Right. But the show. Unit of consumable entertainment. Yeah. The show must go on. Right. And this Caspian Wint has kind of like slithered into that role and will not relinquish it. And, and like it's, it is an open secret in the world of the, in the world of the film too. They actually have the real tennis player, John McEnroe (laughs) as one of the talking heads in the, in the, in this little movie directed by Jake Shemansky 
Andy Samberg plays the arch enemy of the tennis player played by Kit Harrington. Aaron Williams, the adopted sibling of <laughs> Venus and Serena Williams. I remember <laughs> when they when they what inter- Venus describes as a reverse blindside. I remember when like they 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 introduced his name as Williams. I was like, oh, that's funny. Like Serena and Venus. And then like five minutes later, it's like, you oh, he was, it. he was raised, he was raised by Venus and Serena's like tennis dad. Yeah. Uh, it's great. It's great. British television is fucking full of creeps. I mean, we just had the, at least for now, conclusion of the, the Graham Linehan saga. Uh, has it, has it concluded? I haven't been following Anything well, I mean, at least his world. Twitter is banned at long oh, last. Yes. Well, yeah, that'll do it. Yep. Yeah. I am given to understand that he made an appearance in front of Parliament to appeal that. Gotta love which it. Which really, really beggars belief. Just the, the, a guy who could have ridden into the sunset as a perfectly beloved maker of some Britcoms that people liked. It's quite something. Yep. Yep. Well, self-evaluation um, could not have happened to a nicer person. So, <laughs> really couldn't have. How many years after the fictional close of Seven Days in Hell do you think that Caspian went either dies of a drug overdose or quietly retires before he's arrested? Yes, he like I don't know. That's a good question because I feel like it go either way. He's not a well man to look at. No. Him. Like no, you can you can see the fucking liver liver failure. Yes, <laughs> and then like you know, but the thing is, like, if he were a priest, he would just be quietly shuffled to another diocese. You know, like right. I don't know if he's quietly shuffled to another. Like, does he then become a presenter on top of the pops? Like, I don't, I don't know. Does he move? From, right. Does he transition from sports to some other? I'm sorry, from sport, <laughs> sport over there. Uh, to some other field, I don't know. God, what a stupid fucking little island. <laughs> I want to apologize. Gretchen's opinions of, of Great Britain do not necessarily reflect those of Cut to Black. <laughs> you know I'm right, Sean. God, it's just a chinless, inbred little cul-de-sac. <laughs> he is a very, he is a very, 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 very British character. I yes. Think. And, uh, which helps because Michael Sheen just looks sort of indelibly British. I don't. I don't think you could really cast him as an American. Well, I I will offer um, evidence in favor of that proposition. I watched at least two seasons of Masters of Sex. Oh my god, what a boring fucking show! It fucking sucked so hard, and I felt bad for him and for Lizzie Kaplan, who both of whom I like, and you know, and I th- like. Ugh. Masters of Sex has the super hot premise, right? Where it's yeah. like, we're two scientists and we're going to start fucking to monitor what that's like for us and to sort of be a release valve for the sexual tension that builds up as we watch other people fuck for our fuck study. It's just but- astonishing to me that any human artist could make an entire show about Lizzie Kaplan having sex that I don't like. It's 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 it's. it's it's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. They do away with the with the crux of the show by like the they start introducing like unpleasant teenagers as characters, you know, in that way that was very popular to kind of make to make fun of about 
seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, it was well-deserved. Like those characters sucked and weren't real. Like this is a show about real people. And they're like, they're not enough boring teenage characters who distract from the main narrative in these Jesus people's actual lives, actual lives. We have to make up new character. We have to make up these teenagers to distract from the narrative. Oh God. And I felt the William masters as he played it. And I think it was because it was as written, you know, I don't blame him at all. Is the most uncharismatic, uninteresting, unsexy man that you've just about just about ever seen. And it's oh, for a he's show, a weeble. He's yeah. nothing. And for a show that was so clearly conceived as this is this is Showtime's Mad Men. Right. To miss the mark that wide. And it has nothing to do with what Michael Sheen looks like. He's a handsome guy. He's he's maybe not uh, John Hamm handsome, but like nobody is. So like, right. you know, and, and he had chemistry with Lizzie Kaplan for sure, but they, it was just so boring. Yes. So boring. They took and the- then to see him here where with a tiny fraction of the screen time, he's just incandescent. Yes. Yes. It Amazing. Oh, it, it, I remember because I, I, I believe I saw it after – no, for 100% saw this after I saw the mas- the amount of Masters of Sex that I watched. And it was like the sun coming out after – it was like Here Comes the Sun by the fucking Beatles for Michael Sheen. Like, that's what it was like. Like, th- this guy is good. This guy is funny. This guy is lively. This guy can inhabit a character and make a whole thing out of it in about – Two minutes of screen time total? It blew me the fuck away. I mean, I've, I've said this before. But the clip that we started with, the way that Caspian Wint says Cracker Jack, his whole life is bound up in that one gulp and word. Yeah. It's, it's the most illuminating line that I can think of off the top of my head. Just the the damp trembling self-loathing of it. I mean, you can, you can fucking feel him getting the world's saddest direction. (laughs) (laughs) It is. uh, Oh yeah. He, you know, the thing I keep, when, when I think about what he does in this very small role in this short film, which which I guess I should also say is like kind of part of like a little series of sports related things that Andy Samberg was in with the same creative team. He did a thing about the Tour de France called Tour de Pharmacy, which is about drug abuse on the Tour de France. And then he did another thing with... The, his usual collaborators in the Lonely Island, the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience, which is about famously steroidal baseball players, uh, Mark McGuire and J- Jose Canseco. And like in all three cases, it's like this exploration of, of masculinity. It really is. And it gets incredibly stupid, but like on purpose. And Caspian Wint, I think, 
is like another, you know, because you have Charles Lloyd Poole played by Kit Harrington, who's just a, a who's the stupidest man alive. Right. And, well, and and importantly, he's he's not a man; he's a child when he first meets Caspian Wynn. He's like sixteen. Yes. Yes. Fifteen, even. Yeah, I think I think it's it's either fourteen or fifteen. He's very young. And um, and then in Sandberg's character, Aaron Williams, you have this sort of voraciously sexual bad boy character who will fuck anything that moves. Right. And like Caspian Wint is kind of a study in how sexuality can curdle and turn into something like he looks like he, he's like a he's like an unpopped pimple. He's like an unlanced boil. Jesus Christ. I mean, you mentioned Gollum earlier, which is very fitting to me because I don't believe that the, I don't believe that Caspian went as we see him has been honest with another human being probably in decades. Yeah. This is, this is not a guy who has friends <laughs> or confidants. No. Yeah. He, as McEnroe says, everyone hated him. Right. He's an open secret, effectively even to himself. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think that's, you know, because I feel like his little talk show where he can ask a 15 year old tennis prodigy to lift up his shirt so he can look at the abdominal muscles. It's um, desperate. It's yes. so desperate. Yeah. And I think it's impressive, honestly as character work and like the thing that I keep thinking of when I think of him is to get back to Tim and Eric is Dr. Steve Brule. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just one of these, like you take a great actor who has some comedic chops or more than some, and you just like the way that he inhabits this tiny, tiny, tiny role in this weird thing that was made for HBO. That's like 40 minutes long. That's like a complete, I I, I don't know how it was greenlit. I don't know what the process was. It's really random. Yeah. It doesn't fit into like the HBO mold really at all, No, but he just, he gives it his all physically, mentally. Like he just, he looks like that. He, he just, he, he doesn't look like he has put on a costume. He looks like he has been Caspian Wint for 48 years. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's the same with, with John C. Riley and, and Dr. Steve Brule, particularly in Check It Out, which is a solo series. You just forget that he's John C. Riley. Absolutely. He's a completely separate human being. Yeah. I, I just think it's such an achievement what Sheen was able to do with this part in, in such a limited amount of screen time. And they clearly had tons of stuff that wound up on the cutting room floor. Like they have a couple of bits in the credits where he asks him to, sh- he asks Kit Harrington's character to show him how, how he holds the racket. A racket. <laughs> and what if it's a very dirty racket. <laughs> <laughs> and just the oblivious playing along that makes it sound all, it makes it all sound like ways to jerk a guy off. Yes. Like, uh, and props to Harrington for having like the 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 good humor to play like a completely vacant like little hunk hunklet. 
you know? Like so fucking funny. Yeah. It really is because he, he has the same gormless expression that Jon Snow wears a lot of the time when like <laughs> yes. Jon Snow learns something he wish he hadn't learned, you know, <laughs> it happens over and over again for for eight seasons. He finds out things he didn't want to know. And he just uh, he just has this kind of like he has to, he, you know because he has these such these really really dark eyes that like right. he, it's easy for him to look vacant. Right, he looks you know kind of like a small animal. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, like uh, my parents' Shih Tzu <laughs> as, as the Sam stare. <laughs> and by contrast, there's something so lively about Caspian Wind who who says when 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 Harrington's character asks him why he smells like fire he says because i rage inside like a furnace <laughs> i have no doubt that he does right like this is a very dark thing to even wonder about i highly doubt that Caspian Wind has ever actually fucked an object of his sexual interest Yes, I think that, yeah, yeah. Just because he seems so fundamentally roach-like. Like, that is a human being who runs for underneath the refrigerator as soon as the light comes on. Yep. I mean, imagine even the dynamic of, like, putting another adult man in the room with him, which is something we never see. (laughs) That's true. That's a good point. We do never see that. We see him with Charles's mother, who is a totally amoral opportunist who's exploiting her own child for publicity and fame and money. And that's it. And then we see him with Charles, who's a child. Mm-hmm. And he reports that the Duke has been pushed when the Duke gets pushed. by <laughs> I believe he also briefly says this is not something to miss. <laughs> Which he also nails. Yeah. I want to see, like, you want to see more of this character. Yeah, you do. Despite the fact that he is thoroughly loathsome. So repulsive. I genuinely think you could get a whole extremely good film out of Michael Sheen in that role. 100%. A thousand percent. I don't know who besides you and me would watch it. (laughs) (laughs) But I would be queued up, man. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, there's there's a risk to doing that sort of thing. Like, uh, I haven't heard a single person say anything positive about the Jesus Rolls, which was John Turturro's movie that was sort of like a semi sequel to Big, The Big Lebowski about oh, his yeah, Jesus yeah, character, about, yeah, uh, who's not really, in terms of his interests, dissimilar from Caspian Wind. That's very true. He is also a sport enthusiast. Yes. And a, um, and a pederast. And a pedophile, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the two relevant poles of Caspian Wentz's life. <laughs> and and I, should, I guess I'll yep. say here that I don't mean to make light of... Do we need to say this? Do we even need to say this? No, we don't. I mean, now we've brought it up, so we're going to. I can always and cut I it. Do not, we do not take this issue lightly. No. This is about a particular performance in a particular film. This is not about children who experience real pain at the hands of, you know, a predator. Yeah. 
And that's all we're going to say about that. Let's drop it there. Let's not go through the per- the personal fucking bona fides anymore. No, fuck it. I'm, I don't do that anymore. All right. <sighs> all right. Let's uh, let's pep it back up. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that in addition to the body language, Caspian Wentz costuming and makeup is incredible. Yeah, it really is insane. I mean, that that awful jacket, the sweater that he's wearing under it over a button up like. He looks like someone is weekend at Bernie's ing an English professor. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it it really, it really does pop right off the screen. It really does. Because it's also very different looking from anyone that you've seen in the show so far up until. Absolutely. They're mostly, you know, a bunch of goofy looking people or like relaxed talking heads. Yeah. And this is also um, the format changes when we pop to Caspian and Charles. Suddenly it is a like multi camera sports show setup where people are visible sitting in chairs. Yeah. And before that, everything is either talking heads or like full body action. Right. Right. Yeah. This is, this is like an art, this is archival footage. Of yeah. like a, a talk show segment that aired at the time, and it uh, really slows down the pace. Yep, yep. And I guess I should also say here that there's a big, big contrast within Seven Days in Hell between Caspian Wint, who is so frustrated, clearly, by his own unspeakable desires, and Aaron Williams. Who, as I said earlier, will fuck anything that moves and does. Like, yeah, he there's, there's, has a threesome on the court at Wimbledon. Right. After first having sex for hours with both the woman involved and then the man involved, he enlists them both for further hours of sex as a threesome. He has prison orgies. He invents like a a, a balls out form of underwear. Like <laughs> he. he <laughs> When he the the computer reenactment that they used to show oh his escape God, from the, prison, like, Taiwanese news style, right? Yeah, and he has the penis the length of his arm. You know, like right. it, it, you, I don't know that you need it, but what the there's a contrast set up between like the the sort of free living rock and roll lifestyle that Aaron Williams has. And then this person who's who's all like bottled up and spoiled. Yes, yeah, it went rancid inside. Yeah, and I, I, you know, what you said earlier that this is sort of a movie all about different kinds of masculinity rings very true when you think about every man in the film with whom we spend any kind of time. I mean, even some of the talking heads are like very, very uncomfortably sexual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of Will Forty's character who does that absolutely fucking incredible line about how everyone wanted to fuck Aaron, Aaron Williams back in the day. Uh-huh. I think it's, I mean, you could tell as soon as the, these two walked into the arena, every woman there just soaked their socks. <laughs> and the, the documentarian who's not mic'd up, you hear him very softly say, God. 
like also, um, just to take it back to John Hamm for a second, he's the narrator of this fucking oh movie. Oh my god! And you have like uh, Jim Lampley, who's like a real sportscaster, and like every time they show him as a talking head, like the point he's trying to make is that tennis is a less than sport than like the actual manly sports that he gives a shit about, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> That's really funny to me. I don't yeah, I mean, at, at once, this movie is so macho and so feminized. Yes. <laughs> and, it, like, I'm remembering also when uh, Charles gets a call from the queen who's drunk. <laughs> who keeps, she keeps referring to him as a fuck slut. Yes. I've been oh. drinking. <laughs> it's just, you don't hear very many men described as fuck sluts. You truly don't. You don't. People are saying this more and more, that you don't hear it. <laughs> oh, And maybe but you yeah, should. There's this this sort of continuum in the film where everyone is either repressed or incredibly sexual or some extremely unwholesome combination of the two. Right. And there's also the, the Fred Armisen character. And I, I don't typically like him, but he's fine here. <clears throat> who I believe is Edward pudding. Yes, he is Edward pudding. <laughs> who is a, a member of the Royal tennis society. And when he's the guy who calls Caspian went a bit of a rascal and who is so proper and repressed that at one point he explains that everyone at Wimbledon knew that Aaron Williams was doing Coke during one of his matches in order to win. But in England, it's terribly rude to point things out. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm starting to cough. I knew this was, this was inevitable. Yeah. When we, when, but <laughs> excuse me. And uh, like, in some cases, like the door swings both ways, right? Like as much as Aaron Williams is voraciously sexual, he is also uh, has erectile dysfunction depending <laughs> right. on the needs of the narrative, which kind of right. gets back to what we were saying about joke delivery mechanisms. It's like when the joke is he needs to fuck people for hours on the court at Wimbledon in order to prevent the resolution of this epic marathon game that he's playing against Kid Harrington's character. he's a sexual monster. Right. But when it's funnier for him to not be able to get it up when he's trying to have sex with Karen Gillan, then he can't get it up. Right. And like... Which, you know, it's not something that ruins my my admiration for the film, which is one of my favorite comedies. But it does make it sort of fundamentally less coherent than something that I could really deeply emotionally engage with. Yeah. I feel like that should be an uncontroversial thing to say. I think so too. And I think it's also okay if either the emotional engagement that occurs between you and art is one-sided coming from you or else it's not what you're looking for. You don't want to have an intense experience. Mm -hmm. Those things are like, well, that's not for me, but that's fine. I won't stop you. Yeah. I, so much. I think of art discourse is just like, Oh, we made the mistake of talking about this instead of shutting up and carrying on with our lives. <laughs> that could be a good motto for this podcast. 
we've made the mistake of talking about these things <laughs> instead of shutting up and going on with our lives. Jesus. I think I've said just about all I've got to say about our, our good pal Caspian win. Yeah, he got us through a, a pretty wide range of topics and and good for him. Honestly. He's, He's durable. He's a, he's a durable character. The range on that guy. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I guess that's I guess that about says it all. Who knows when we'll next talk about a comedy, so enjoy it while you've got it. Mm. Cracker Jack. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. This has been Cut to Black. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts. Review us. Say hello. What have you. Every other week, we talk about a different moment in television. And we there hope you, you, you'll, you'll join us next week for the next, or two weeks from now, whatever the hell. I can do math for the next one. Okay. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.